Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Dedicated is expanding. We are now filming our segments. We are doing some slick new video inside the Sirius XM studios. So if you want to see me fixing the cocktails and having conversations with our awesome guests, go to YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or the Sirius XM app. And you can see us in studio. Welcome to Dedicated with Doug Brunt. You have just gained access to an exclusive insider's look at the lives and works of some of your favorite authors and hear conversations with the world's greatest writers as they discuss their writing lifestyle, creative process, latest work, and behind-the-scenes revelations. Welcome to Dedicated. I'm your host, Doug Brunt. Today, we're talking with Kashmira Hill. Kashmira is a technology reporter for The New York Times. She's also written for Forbes, Above the Law, The New Yorker, Popular Science, and many other places. And she studied journalism and magazine writing under our prior guest, Merrill Gordon. One of Kashmir's missions in life is to chronicle the fate of privacy in the modern age. And we should all be glad she's on the front lines of explaining what's happening. Her new book, Your Face Belongs to Us, is an eye-opening blend of, on the one hand, optimism for how AI and facial recognition could be used for good, and on the other hand, the horror of how it could be used for evil. And I can't wait to talk with her about it. Kashmir, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. This is exciting. I've really been looking forward to this one. And uh, as we settle in and get started, we are going to solve the issues of good and bad with tech in the future over a gin and tonic. Oh, excellent. So I'll, I'll start that's, getting those while we settle in. That's how the world's problems are best solved. Exactly. I mean, this clearly seems like the best way to do it. <laughs> Okay. It's not going to be a huge gin and tonic. I think okay. We gotta... <laughs> well, it is. It is midday, and I'll have to work after this. So and, and I don't want to make it too strong. Too. <laughs> this is great. I uh, I don't think I've ever been served a drink during an interview before <laughs> for the radio. You know, in, in my mind, the New York Times, like the liquor's flowing all day long. Is that not the case? <laughs> no. Every once in a while, there'll be like, uh, end of the day whiskey offered. but Like pulled out of the bottom drawer of someone's <laughs> desk? Um, okay, I'm just going to cut up the lime here, and then we're good to go. This is amazing. So what was Merrill Gordon's drink? Gin and tonic. Oh, really? Yes, you were the second uh, gin and tonic on the show, and the first was Meryl. What's been your favorite drink to make so far? Jennifer Egan had one called the Gold Rush, which was good. It was sort of bourbon, oh. lemon. It was good, but... Um, I should have given you something more challenging. What? <laughs> uh, uh, let's see. Lawrence Wright was just here with a Vesper Martini, which was really good. Ooh. Douglas Murray was a Manhattan, which is actually one of my favorites. So. Oh, wonderful. Cheers. Thank you so much. Great to see you. 
Mm. There's something so classic about the gin and tonic. Yeah, you know, you don't have totally. it that much, but it's always yeah. refreshing and good. And now we won't get malaria. <laughs> that's right. The tonic, right? <laughs> that's the... That's like a, is that a wife's tale? Tonic actually can't really. No, I think this is actually like a colonial that's a true drink. Thing? Yeah, that they, the, the, the British colonialists drank this to try so to So when they say tonic, more. curing malaria, is it literally the kind of tonic we get out of a bottle at the grocery the, store? I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but the quinine in it is supposed to mm. be a deterrent. I don't know if this is a scientifically sound thing, but I do know this is the history of the gin and tonic. All right. So now I, I feel like we actually are being kind of healthy here. At first I was just, <laughs> oh, that's a wives tale, but... Okay, so sometimes when I start these interviews, I uh, look up on Wikipedia about some mm. folks, and half the time it's wrong, and I did not have a Wikipedia search on you, so I get to just ask you, where are you from? I grew up in Florida. Florida. In and Sarasota, then, a little, little retirement town. I know, that on the west coast of Florida, mm -hmm, right? Very beautiful. And then schools brought you out of there? Yes, I went to Duke for undergrad. I spent some time working in D.C. for a law firm and a nonprofit called the National Press Foundation. And then I got into journalism. And I worked at first for a kind of legal tabloid blog called mm -hmm. Above the Law. Mm -hmm. uh, and then moved to New York to go to NYU to study magazine journalism, which is where I met Merrill. Where you met Merrill, yeah. right. So you didn't go to law school, but you have worked in and out of law firms. Yeah, I kind of played a lawyer on the internet okay. uh, and have learned a lot about the law and the Yeah, because your discussion topics. of Floyd Abrams in the book, who's sort of a, I'm not a lawyer myself, but I do also know about Floyd Abrams as a kind of legendary First Amendment lawyer. And you had a very like high level discussion of him and his involvement in facial recognition in the book. Yeah, it's so fascinating. I mean, I'm sure we'll get into it, but, uh, you know, this company uh, that I wrote about in the book, you know, scraped all these photos from the public internet. And a lot of people object to that. They don't like the idea that all this information was collected about them. But the company mm -hmm. says, hey, you know, we're just collecting public information. We're yeah. like Google, but we do faces instead of names. Yeah. So, yeah, we will get into that later. But that it does come down to First Amendment rights and information and what's what's uh, free game and, and not. So were you always a techie as a kid, though? No, I don't think I was always a techie. Um, I was, I always had my nose in a book uh, for mm -hmm. a very long time. I actually consider myself a late adopter of technology, which is maybe why, uh, yeah, I have some skepticism of it sometimes. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I, uh, I'm trying to think of like my first, I didn't even get a cell phone uh, until after college. That probably does bring that skepticism to it, as you said. You, like you, and, and I also want to define this term later in the in the interview, but you do not suffer from technical sweetness. No. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's incredible. So when I started writing about privacy, part of my lens on it is that technology does bring all of these benefits. And it's great that we can land in any city in the world and you get out your smartphone and you can find out the best restaurants there. You can quickly call a car. You know, we can just navigate the world yeah. and have access to information like never before. But the flip side of that is that we're addicted to technology. There's also information being collected about us all the time. So kind of trying to figure out how do we navigate this? How do we get the good but avoid the bad? Yeah. So I used to, years ago, I worked for a technology firm, technology, like a security software firm. And my developers would always tell me there's a trade-off and it's almost like a negative one correlation between privacy and flexibility. The mm -hmm. more you want to do the more exposed you are privacy-wise. So if it's convenience and flexibility you want, it's privacy is going to give. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's so hard for people today to navigate this. Uh, on the one hand, I think a lot of people are becoming more private, like not posting their public photos as much, not posting photos of their children kind of on the public internet. Mm -hmm. Everyone's got private Instagram accounts, texting privately. At the same time, you have all these benefits that come from being an influencer, you know, being a content creator, yeah. doing these TikTok videos for millions of people to watch. So trying to trying to navigate that, figure out which side of the line that you want to be on and the benefits that come from privacy versus the benefits from putting yourself out there. Speaking of your reporting here, one of your specialties I've noticed in the book and I've in, in your coverage generally is you're great at the one-on-one -on -one interviews to go out there and gather news and information. And I applaud that for a couple of reasons. I mean, one, just the industriousness of it is great because when you're putting together these pieces, it's so hard to really put the polish on it if you're not out from behind your desk. You, know, you got to go out there and, and gather the information to make the pieces really work. But it's also bold. And just drawing on one of the stories here in your book, you follow a lead, you hop on a train, you go to a town you don't really know that well, you find yourself in this mysterious building down a dark, weird hallway. And not to make light of anything, but I hope you're walking around with a can of mace. <laughs> yeah, um, I am never afraid, I guess, to follow my curiosity. Um, yeah, I just don't think that technology in and of itself is all that interesting. It's mm -hmm. the people, you know, the how it affects your life, kind of the people that make it, the people that are the victims of it. So as much as I can, I love kind of, yeah, being in the real world reporting on technology. And so I've done a lot of guinea pig uh, journalism over the years where when Bitcoin was first getting big, um, I lived for a week on Bitcoin in San Francisco. Uh, I did the story where I turned my... What year was that? That was in 2013. Bitcoin was worth $90 at the time. How did you live? Like, were you able to buy your groceries on Bitcoin? So I literally put my all my cash and my credit cards in a drawer, bought 10, uh, five or 10 Bitcoin, I can't remember now. And yeah, I mean, I lived in San Francisco, so it was probably a little easier than elsewhere in the world. But there were only two restaurants that took Bitcoin, a sushi place and a cupcake place. And they're on opposite sides of San Francisco. I couldn't pay for transportation with it. So I rented a bike from a friend for half a Bitcoin. And so I'm just like biking all over the city, biking back and forth where I could get my food. So I lost five pounds. I had to move out of my apartment. Um, I was totally caffeine deprived all the time because I couldn't buy coffee. And yeah, I ended up moving into a hacker hotel with chickens on the roof. And it was, yeah. <laughs> now, fast forward roughly 10 and you, years. And how you can't buy mace with Bitcoin. Yeah, right. uh, <laughs> well, it's funny because I did it again the next year in 2014. Yeah. And that was one of the first big spikes in Bitcoin. It had gone to $1,000. And so that year it was easy. My landlord's like, please pay me in Bitcoin. I'd love to own some. I went to a strip club and like paid in Bitcoin. I went on a wine tour of Santa Cruz. Yeah, it had completely changed. So how is that? I mean, I'm so I don't own any Bitcoin. I never have. So if you were going to pay in Bitcoin, does it like, is it something off your phone? Or how do you even do the transaction in a strip joint? Let me give me that example. Yeah. So the um, one of the women who worked there, an exotic dancer, she actually created her Bitcoin account right there on her phone, you know, uh, popped up a QR code. I scan it. I send her some money. I mean, it's yeah, it was it, what was so appealing about Bitcoin back then was that 
you know, anybody could transact digitally and it was so easy to create an account. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was wild. I, at one point I had some extra Bitcoin left over at the end. So I invited all these, whoever wanted to come in San Francisco who was involved in the Bitcoin community to come to the sushi restaurant. I ended up having like dozens of people show up, a very eclectic crowd um, of economists and entrepreneurs. Uh, and I paid something like... I can't remember now. I think I ended up paying 10 Bitcoin for the dinner, which at the time was what, like $900. And, and later thousands was and thousands of dollars. I mean, $600,000. My oh husband my sometimes is like, why didn't you just keep the Bitcoin? I have heard that story of, you know, one of the first Bitcoins, you know, it was like 10 Bitcoins for a pizza or something, which is it's now be millions of dollars or something like that. Mm -hmm. So is that how it works now? It's just a QR code scan and then you can transfer money from account to account just that way? Yeah. Yeah. It's like a, a digital currency. Um, and yeah, it's pretty easy to transact in it, but it's kind of like, why would you? Why would you choose to do Bitcoin instead of a credit card or yeah. cash? So I think it's mostly become just a speculative kind of investment. I mean, and I just don't understand. Like, I'm just, I'm not going to transact in anything. I don't understand. Like, I don't, I feel like Tommy Lee Jones and the Fugitive. Like, this is, this sounds hinky. Like, I don't know. I don't understand. I don't want anyone doing that around me. I don't even. Well, it was scary to live on it because yeah. it was just like it was going up and down wildly. So when I started, I think Bitcoin was $100 and I bought it $100 and it dropped to 90 And so I was losing money in real time. I was like, am I going to make it through the week on my budget? Um, so, yeah, but I try to do those those things where I'm in the real world. I'm interacting with people and technology is just a vehicle for, yeah. you know, talking about where we are and, and the worlds we want to create and and show the benefits and then show the downsides, like how hard it is to actually buy things with Bitcoin. Yeah. So that Bitcoin story leads me to my, my first question in the process section of, of your writing, which is how do you come across topics and, and pick a topic to write about? Yeah. I mean, with technology, I'm, I'm, I'm always trying to kind of look to the horizon and figure out what's coming so I can help prepare other people for that and make sure that they understand it. Um, so yeah, I mean, Bitcoin was a thing. Um, uh, smart homes when smart, you know, smart devices, internet of things was starting to get big. I, mm -hmm. uh, transformed my home into a smart home and kept track of the data that was going. Is your in husband just like, honey, what is going on here? Oh, my God. So the most recent story I did involving my husband is uh, when Apple released AirTags, uh, which you're supposed to use to kind of keep track of. We put it in our luggage. Is that yeah, the main use? Yeah, put it use? in your luggage, yeah. yeah, to track your luggage, know where it is. But when they released it, women started finding these AirTags in their coats, in their purses. People were finding it behind their license plate. People who saw their car and thought, I want to know where that car is later so I can go and steal it. Oh, my God. And so I had written about it for the New York times i wanted to understand how easy is it to track some somebody with this or a per, like people are just slipping it into someone's pocket to follow them around yeah follow them home oh, from a bar oh my god and so i asked my husband can will you be my guinea pig for this can i track <laughs> you and i like hid air tags uh, you know all over tiles a gps tracker just to kind of show how much information you're able to gather from somebody this way and how hard it is for for them to detect it's happening, how, you know, Apple had built yeah. in um, kind of alerts for people to let them know if they had an AirTag on them that was non-consensually there, but it was very difficult for him to discover it. And so, yeah, it was a kind of um, a story about stalking my husband. Many people said that he should have divorced me, but I said, I got his consent. <laughs> right, this was consensual. I got his consent. But then the New York <laughs> Times did secretly send a photographer to trail him around the city and take pictures. That was a little over the line, but we're still happily married, luckily. Oh, that's great. <laughs> So how, how does it work within the Times? That's that's a great thing about your your uh, 
editors sending photographers around. How do you put together the parameters for a story in terms of the amount of time you have to get it done and the resources you have and the word count for the piece itself? Yeah, I'm really lucky. I'm um, I'm an enterprise reporter, which basically means I'm a features writer. And so I get to spend a lot of time on stories, sometimes months at a time, researching something, you know, just trying to come up with, yeah, a big idea that kind of shows us that, like I was saying before, something on the horizon. Um, and so I'll talk to an editor about an idea I have. Uh, sometimes people send me tips or ideas, which is always helpful. Uh, yeah. And then I'll spend some time digging deep on it and then coming up with hopefully a good story. They do tend to be on a little bit on the longer side. Um, but yeah, I, I try to make sure that every word is worth it because I don't want to waste anyone's time. Yeah. And then so are you sort of outlining where it's it must be hard to outline because you don't know where it's going to take you but you can maybe identify gaps in the research or a wish list of interview sub people or things like that yeah i mean i start out with well one how do i report this out how do i turn this into a narrative like really try to make it a story that is going to unfold in an interesting way uh and then yeah talking to my editor i feel like every time i interview somebody i ask them who else should i be talking to and it's mm -hmm. kind of like this daisy chain uh, that you end up following. And yeah. I never know when I start a story what I'm going to find out. And I think that's important as a journalist that you don't go into it assuming that you know what the story is. That's the process of reporting and letting it kind of unfold for you. And then sometimes these features that you write, long or short, can take on another life as a book. I mean, William Finnegan, who you, you probably know the writer for The Great New Yorker, writer. writes some mm -hmm. pieces on surfing. And then they sort of grow and become this book that he, he writes. And that's a little bit of what I think happened with your, your most recent book here, Your Face Belongs to Us. But how does that evolution work sometimes? Yeah, with this story, you know, from the kind of moment I heard about Clearview, I'd been writing about privacy and technology for many years. And what they did was so shocking, um, you know, just going out there and collecting these billions of photos, creating this this app um, that lets somebody just take a photo of somebody and find all the photos of them uh, that were online. Uh, and then the company was, even though it was exposing so much about us, it was trying to stay in the shadows. And from the very beginning, the investigation was just wild, almost like something out yeah. of fiction where they had an address on their website here in Manhattan. And when I went there, that building didn't exist. Uh, that was spooky stuff. I mean, that was like... <laughs> That, that was the beginning of a crazy crime novel. Let me just back up for one second yeah. for listeners, because what Kashmir did when she first came in the studio here, hmm. there's an app that you can download to your phone. I, there's, a, I guess, a free version and a subscription a version. Website. Yeah, yeah. Free version and subscri subscription. And so you can take a picture of someone and then use the app and every photo scraped from everywhere online. You know, they, they have billions of photos in their database it will show all this information about you. And so there'll be photos. What really gets me is that you might not even be the subject of a photo. Like I could be walking down Broadway in Times Square and some tourists are taking their picture. I just happen to be walking by in the background. Half of my face could be in the distance of their photo, but they take their photo and they post it to Instagram. And suddenly my face is in the background of their photo. But this app has facial recognition that will pick that up. And then Someone knows that on such and such a date at such and such a time, I was on 44th and Broadway. You know, it's just crazy that this stuff. And then so the universe of pictures out there can know where I've been, when I've been there and identify all this information about me 
tie that to my social media accounts or other information about me. So with just one little glance at someone, you can walk up to a stranger in a bar, take their picture, put it in this app, and have an incredibly rich amount of information come about, come back instantaneous about who that person is and where they've been. Yeah, I mean, this this technology is really uh, kind of the proverbial cat, you know, scratching its way outside the bag. And PimEyes is that service that you're talking about. How do you spell and, that? Just Because so, <laughs> people should know this is out there. I feel I like so people few people know. know it's yeah. out there. I mean, know for themselves, ideally not using it on other people <laughs> without their consent. Right. But it's called PimEyes, P-I-M-E-Y-E-S. And their database is much smaller than Clearview. I think that they only have hundreds of millions of photos as opposed to the 30 billion faces that Clearview AI has. Um, Clearview has scraped social media sites and PimEyes has not. It's just the public internet. But yeah, I mean, it's very shocking. And PimEyes has in their terms of service and you have to check a box that you're only searching for your own face. Yeah. Uh, but, but there's no way to control that? They have no technical controls on that. I have a subscription. I pay $30 a month, mostly to demonstrate it to people like you. And I can do 25 searches a day. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why I would need to search my own face 25 times a day. Right, that's a clear, yeah. Right. And I mean, listeners can probably draw the the connections here, but a a potentially good use of this is there's a mugging in the street or a murder in the street, which we see from time to time here in New York. It's on the post every day. Some street camera can capture, you know, a fuzzy, even like a fuzzy partial facial picture of the person and police can use this to identify that person and catch the criminal. So great positive use. But it could also be some crazy person in a bar who is erotically attracted to someone, takes their picture, and then knows everything about them. Right. I mean, that is, I write about somebody in the book. So Clearview AI is limited to police use, but PimEyes, as we said, is public. So I write about somebody in the book who he has this kind of addiction to pornography and has this privacy kink where he'll see a woman in one of these videos and he just wants to know what her real name is because most people are using stage names if they're doing that kind of work. And he described like, looking for this one woman he saw in a couch casting video and finding her high school photos on Flickr. Mm. And he he's done this with a lot of different women and eventually got tired of that and then went through his list of Facebook friends and just searched the faces of his friends to see if they had any risque photos on the internet. And he said he described finding one who had um, what's usually called revenge porn, basically Mm -hmm. intimate photos that she had shared with a partner who had then posted them online. Her name was not attached to these, these photos. He wouldn't have been able to find them in like a name search. But with a face search, was able to to turn them up. And he actually came and confessed this to me because he said, I don't think this technology should exist. Like, I'm disgusted with myself. I don't think I should be able to do this. I want policymakers to know and make changes. But yeah, I mean, there's it's it's hard. There's there's positive uses and there's not so positive uses. I mean, it seems like the cat has so leapt out of the bag. There's, there are a few terms in the book that I thought were fascinating that are, I don't know how common in a Vogue, they were, they were new to me. One is the social, the democratization of surveillance, that it used to be limited to, you know, national intelligence agencies. But now, as, as you point out, almost anyone can have pretty sophisticated surveillance technology to totally leap privacy boundaries that citizens would think are in place. 
but are really are not with this technology that's out there. Yeah, I mean, for decades, this kind of technology was controlled by the big tech companies. And I think something that surprised a lot of people that's in the book is that Facebook and Google had this technology internally, this kind of ability to take a photo of somebody and put a name to a face. And they actually decided to hold it back. They thought it was too dangerous to release. Mm -hmm. And so it, it kind of stayed inside their, you know, their bunkers for a long time. But now so many of these technologies, these new AI technologies are open source and the tools are available to to anyone who has the technical savvy to use them. Right. And I mean, so the, the guy who there. the tech guy behind Clearview AI did not seem like a particular genius. I mean, he, he, he may have had some smarts more than came across to me in the book. He was clearly a smart guy, but it was basically him in a garage using open source software who developed something that was pretty extraordinary. Well, he wasn't in a garage. He was in cafes in the East Village in Manhattan. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, Juan Tanta is, um, uh, that's the name of the technical founder of Clearview AI, just a person who was obsessed with technology. But yeah, his history was making Facebook quizzes and iPhone games and an app called Trump Hair. He's not like an MIT PhD guy. No, I mean, really like a self-trained technologist. And yeah. he was able to build this radical app that is norm changing. I mean, it was so shocking when the world found out about Clearview AI. And yeah, I mean, he was able to kind of scrap it together, working out of cafes with free Wi-Fi. I mean, it makes me wonder what the KGB guys and the CIA guys and the Israeli Mossad guys, they must have something. I don't know, but I guess the law enforcement, they're all, for at least for a time, we're licensing Clearview AI. So maybe yeah, Clearview I mean, AI is as strong as it gets, or is there something stronger? I mean, what is what is powerful about Clearview AI is the database that they've they've amassed. And so they have collected these faces from all over the internet, 30 billion faces. Um, and they get these from Facebook and Instagram and Snap and LinkedIn and other and Venmo, social media places. Yeah, Flickr, employment Venmo, yeah. websites. And so police pay for access to this ability. They have that they've been used by thousands of police departments. The Department of Homeland Security has a contract with them. So does the FBI. The um, Air Force has actually paid them to do experimental research uh, to put this into augmented reality glasses so that soldiers could have this um, mm -hmm. kind of ability to recognize or have alerts on faces at bases. Amazing. Amazing. One other term in the book that I have become obsessed with since I read it is technical sweetness, which was coined, I think, by Heather Douglas of a uh, philosophy professor. Can you describe what technical sweetness refers yeah. to? So Heather Douglas is a philosopher of science, which I love. Um, so technical sweetness is just this, this human desire to solve a technical puzzle, you know, to, to make these breakthroughs even, you know, regardless of what the societal implications are. And so with a technology like facial recognition, there's just this chain of people who have been working towards solving this puzzle of, of getting computers to identify faces for decades. And mm -hmm. I went back and interviewed a lot of the people who were involved in it. And they just said, I was like, well, did you think about a world in which anyone could be identified where, you know, we could be tracked everywhere we go by cameras. And they said, well, when I was working on it, it was so 
basically janky. Like it didn't work. It was hard to imagine it being perfected. And I just assumed that someone else would kind of deal with those implications, figure out the policy for it. Wonton Tat described it. He said, um, you know, I was standing on the shoulders of giants Mm -hmm. and every giant just thought somebody else would, would deal with the downside of perfecting the technology. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I, so the, the other, of course, my, my mind with that, your line there standing on the shoulders of giants reminds me, of course, of Jurassic Park. Yeah, you know, it's so the technical sweetness is like your excitement about pushing it forward overwhelms the, 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 that sort of secondary thought. And you're like, well, should we push it forward? You know, the Jeff Goldblum line in Jurassic Park of, you know, should we be doing this? Or, of course, Oppenheimer and the bomb is yeah, the other big the uh, 20th century example. Yeah, technical sweetness comes from Oppenheimer because he said that he he made, a, he has this quote and he's like, you know, when you see something technically sweet, you don't stop and think about it, you just do it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I do. I love the Jurassic Park comparison because yeah. it is that facial recognition technology is uh, the dinosaurs set loose in the world. Yeah, yeah. Um, one other term that, that stuck out to me in the book is used often by the folks the, the technical folks who are advancing this stuff who dismiss the detractors by saying, oh, that's just future shock. Can you describe future shock? Yeah. So Hondon Tat is very defensive of facial recognition technology. And, you know, he says what Clearview AI is doing, providing it to law enforcement is the best possible use case, like helping to mm-hmm. solve crimes. And when people are scared of it when they say this is too in, you know too intimidating it's going to change our world too much there's too many downsides he he describes that reaction as future shock that they just haven't gotten used to the fact that the world has changed mm-hmm. and they need to change with it yeah and there's he he would point to examples of like look and once people got used to this it was really a good thing and but uh i i mean it's just too easy to point to the bad things here that are clearly going to come along with us Yeah, I mean, I think that what's complicated about this is there are clearly beneficial uses of facial recognition technology. Mm -hmm. I mean, I open my phone with my face. Uh, I like that when you travel, I went to London for the book to report on how police are using it there. They're actually sending out mobile vans into crowds with a facial recognition uh, camera on the roof to kind of uh, round up people who are wanted by the courts. And when I landed at Heathrow, rather than standing in that kind of border control line for hours, Mm -hmm. I walked up to a little scanner. I put my passport on it. Our passport have biometric chips inside. I looked into a camera and it verified it was me. Mm-hmm. And I just walked into the country. And I mean, I think many of us would say, yeah, I want to do that. That's great. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, I mean, I like that. But I don't want once I walk into the UK to necessarily have them keep my face and use it to track me everywhere I go with the surveillance cameras that, right. you know, dot the landscape. I, My hope is that we can harness the positive uses of this and kind of discourage the worst uses where we just have no ability to be anonymous in public or to have kind of private spheres where we can just be ourselves without worrying that whatever we do is going to come back and be attached to us for the rest of our lives. Well, it will be interesting to see how we can regulate it because if a self-trained programmer can develop pretty world-beating stuff, it doesn't seem like putting it back in the bottle, the genie back in the bottle is an, is an option. 
I mean, so I would look back in history and there have been moments in time where we had new technologies that were frightening, um, particularly kind of small recording devices and bugs, which happened in the last century. And there was this time, there's this great book about it called The Listeners by Brian Hockman. And there was this time when everyone was frightened that they could no longer have a private conversation, that Mm -hmm. anywhere that you were talking was going to be bugged, recorded, that you couldn't talk on the phone without being recorded. And, you know, we passed laws to uh, to prohibit that kind of secret monitoring, secret recording. And it's the reason why all of the surveillance cameras that are all over the U.S. only record our images and aren't recording our conversations. Oh. So I think we can make rules and mm-hmm. regulations and, you know, establish norms. But someone's out there violating those rules. You were saying <laughs> that, it, it reminded me of that movie, Enemy of the State with Gene Hackman and Will Smith, uh, that really had like elements of this Clearview AI stuff. I, that movie must be 20 plus years old, but I wonder, you know, it seemed to be looking forward a little bit on, on some of this stuff. Um, one, uh, one thing I wanted to ask you, oh, one other, uh, this reminds me, there was one other funny saying in there. This wasn't really a, 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 uh, a term, but it reminded me of that expression. Like if you're at a poker table and you look around, you can't tell who the sucker is. It's you. And there's that, that line there, like, if you're using this stuff online and you're not paying for it, you are the product. I thought that was just a great way of summing up so much of my own internet behavior right now. And people must know so much about me because I almost pay for nothing on, online. You get all these great benefits and you just zip around, you join this, you join that. But yeah. I'm the product. Right. I mean, this was the rise of social networking sites like Facebook and Google. They gave you this free product and then you would kind of provide a lot of information Mm -hmm. that then they would kind of package up and use to target you with ads and advertisers would be paying them. What's changed, I think, um, kind of since then is that now almost everybody's selling us Um, like your smartphone that you're paying however much for your carrier plan per month. They are tending to collect data about you and they are packaging that and selling it um your car like a lot of people's cars are collecting location where they go what they listen to on the radio what you're listening to right now and they're kind of aggregating that information selling it off i mean more and more these companies are wanting to create new revenue streams through all this information that's so easily collected about us and They can do it here in the United States because we really don't have much in the way of a privacy framework or privacy laws that prohibit this kind of collection of information. Yeah. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. 
Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Every day our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. Last thing on the book, really, uh, is that readers will enjoy here that you, and what I love too, is that you took us through the history of it. So it's much more than a Times feature piece. It has the richness of a full book that takes you through the full experience. So it's really worth not, you know, just reading an article about this, but getting the book because you start with the history of, I think it was it Charles Darwin's cousin. Yeah, who Francis was focused Galton, on yeah. physiognomy, physiognomy being, you know, the idea that you can tell about a person's character or soul just through the features of their face, you know, just through their appearance. And you take us through the history of kind of this whole idea of facial recognition and, and stuff. I just, that was a great part of the book. Can you tell us a little bit about that history? Yeah. So, um, so yeah, the, there is this belief going back, um, really millennia that you can judge who someone is by the features of their face. And this is interesting because Francis uh, Galton is actually one of the, the fathers of this kind of way of thinking physiognomy or phrenology. And his cousin was Charles Darwin. And Charles Darwin has this, uh, this anecdote in his diary about how when he first went to interview to go on the Beagle, where he made his like famous observations about evolution, the ship's captain was a physiognomist and he didn't like how the shape of Charles Darwin's nose, he thought it meant that he would not, he would be like lazy or not good at the job and he almost didn't get the job for that reason. But yeah, I mean, for a long time, Francis Galton um, was doing these composite photos of criminals or people with mental illness and kind of putting all the photos together and trying to figure out whether there were any shared features of the face and so whether that was a predictor. And when I was doing the research for the book, I was seeing that this has been coming back in the modern age mm -hmm. and people that work on AI problems saying, well, can we data crunch, you know, the faces of thousands or millions of convicted felons and see if you can tell from someone's face whether they might be prone to criminality? And then what and do we do? Crazy. Is it like minority report future crime? If you have a certain nose, we're just going to come arrest you preemptively? Yeah, that maybe you'll be watched. And we kind of see this happening in some places like, you know, China, um, there's some technology vendors there who will basically give an alert if uh, somebody who looks like a Uyghur Muslim kind of like enters mm -hmm. a, a zone. So, yeah, we kind of see these outdated scientific ideas coming back into vogue. And um, yeah, I think that that is very alarming. There was this, this, this is going back a few decades, but I, I went to a book signing at this art gallery where the the photographer Mark Seliger was there. He he had done a lot of Rolling Stone photographs for musicians and things, but he had a new book out called Physiognomy. And it was, you know, all about, it wasn't trying to do that. It was just saying, here are these faces, you know, that I've, he wasn't making a statement about this really, but it was a really a great, uh, 
But that's where I first learned what that word even mm. meant. Uh, wanted to ask you about a law here, Biometric Information Privacy Act. Can you explain to listeners what that is and is it working? Yeah. So there's basically right now how protected your face is depends on where you live in the world. And if you live in Illinois, you're very lucky because the state passed a law in 2008 uh, called BIPA that says that a company can't use your biometrics, including your face print, your voice print, your fingerprints, without your consent. And if they violate the law, they have to pay something like up to $5,000 per violation. And it means that a company like Clearview is supposed to ask Illinoisans, you know, can I have permission to collect your photo? And this is protective of people who live in Illinois. My favorite example is Madison Square Garden, you know, here in New York, big events venue. The Knicks play there. The Rangers play there. Every big musician's dream is to play Madison Square Garden. And the arena installed facial recognition technology a few years ago to keep out security threats. Mm -hmm. But in the last year, uh, James Dolan, the billionaire who owns it, decided that he would like to use the technology to keep out people he didn't like, <laughs> namely lawyers who worked for firms that had sued him because yeah. they cost him a lot of money and he was annoyed by them. Yeah. And so, yeah, so lawyers who've tried to go to shows there um, actually went with a lawyer once and saw it happen. And it's amazing. You walk through the door, security guard walks up, comes right over, asks for ID, and then you get a note and you get kicked out. Madison Square Garden also owns a theater in Chicago. And they can't do that there. They can't use facial recognition technology to keep lawyers out. What about the new Sphere in Vegas? I oh, guess I that'll can't. have it. <laughs> I, I, Doesn't I, Dolan have a new uh, venue out there? People have been sending me the signs. There are signs inside the Sphere that say facial recognition technology is used here. So yeah. I have a feeling. So it's... why is no one else doing what Illinois did? That's a good question. Um, I I don't I don't know. Uh, Texas has a similar law in the books, but unlike in Illinois, Illinois um, individual citizens can sue, and in Texas, the attorney general has to sue on their behalf. Um, yeah, I don't. I I hmm. I'm not sure why other states haven't passed it. The most relevant laws um, that other states have are privacy laws that give you the right to access the information that a company has on you and delete it. So if you live in California or Colorado or Connecticut or Virginia, you can go to Clearview AI and say, hey, I want to see what information you have on me. Like, what are the photos linked to my face? And you can ask the company to delete them. Huh. Well, one of the closing scenes in the book has this pair of glasses developed by Clearview AI. So if, it, if someone puts them on and it kind of solves that age-old cocktail party problem of, I don't know who that person is who's walking over here and is about to say hello. But if you look at them through these glasses, all of this stuff happens. So they take that face, they run it through the database. Not only do they tell you the name, but they tell you all the stuff and then it sort of pops up in a little screen visible to your eye on your glasses. So as they're approaching you, you can read not only the name, but all this other stuff. And I think that scene was October of 21. Mm -hmm. So Number one, what's happened with those glasses? And number two, what's happened in the, you know, roughly two years since then? Yeah, I mean, so as far as I know, the company is still working on them, um, but I haven't heard of any plans to release the app to the wild yet. So I'm not sure, but clearly it's possible to do this. Mm -hmm. And the other company that has talked about suing something like this is Meta. The, yeah. uh, or Facebook, as, as most of us know it, the chief technology officer there said a few years ago, we'd love to put facial recognition capabilities in these augmented reality glasses that they've been working on. But he said in an inter internal meeting um, that I got to listen to a recording of that 
you know, basically the company wasn't sure society's ready for it or mm -hmm. if it would be legal with laws like Illinois. But I could imagine this future in which we kind of opted into this um, where we said, okay, you know, you're a pretty public person, Doug, you know, maybe you're okay with anybody being able to recognize your face when you're walking around. Whereas maybe somebody else who's more private would say, no, I don't want anyone to know who I am, yeah. that we might have privacy settings for our face in the way that we have them for our like social media profiles right now. Um, mm, I do right, feel like that's one path. Private setting on your yeah, face. Public or private setting on your face. Wow. Um, but yeah, but I think that, yeah, I'm curious. When was that meeting with the the where they, where he talks about the ethics of we you know green light red light based on ethics was that a recent meeting the meeting where he was talking about um putting this in having kind of cocktail party identification was in 2021 mm -hmm. and there has been this debate within meta about what the company should do about facial recognition technology mm -hmm. and since then facebook has actually turned off the kind of facial recognition that allows you to tag friends in photos and they deleted the billion face prints that they had uh, created for their users. So they kind of have backed away from mm. facial recognition technology. But, but the yeah. glasses technically do exist. So if you, ever, if you ever see Zuckerberg at a party, just hide your face or he's yeah. going to know every, because he's <laughs> definitely got them. He just hasn't sold them yet. Well, it's funny. I've been doing book events. Um, I've been on book tour and I was in, uh, I did an event in San Francisco and an event in New York. In both places, there are around 200 people. And I asked the audiences, if this existed, if these augmented reality glasses were out there, would you opt in to having your face recognized? And in San Francisco, a a third of the audience raised their hands and said, like, yes, yes I'd be so willing good. to be identified. Maybe it'd be with Facebook. It'd be only your friends can identify you or friends of friends or everybody. Mm -hmm. And in New York, one person raised their hand. It oh was my gosh. Yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah, it was really interesting. A real cultural divide on privacy from coast to coast. That's so fat. And I, I actually kind of think San Francisco and New York are not that far apart in terms of those issues. I, I would have thought that's but although San Francisco is so much more tech oriented, they're kind of into all the gadgety stuff, I yeah. guess, where the New Yorkers are. I mean, it was crazy there when I was uh, just wandering the streets. There's so many cars that are just zipping around with no drivers. Uh, San Francisco is definitely a little bit further into yeah. the tech future yeah, than we are here in New York. to that stuff, I think. Oh, that's interesting. Well, last thought on tech before we go into the lightning round. I wanted to share a story with you, and I'm actually stealing one of my wife's stories here, but I think she won't mind because her grandmother... So our kid's great-grandmother, but Megan's grandmother, was born in 1915, and so she passed away already. And uh, But a few years before she passed away, we said, Nana, what's the most incredible invention you've ever seen in your life? And we all sort of stared at her for a while, and she sat back, and it took about 30 seconds. Then she goes, the garage door opener. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, if you're born in 1915 in the Northeast when it's constantly snowing or raining, like that was a big one. That was yeah. a big one. You don't think about it. I do like my garage, garage door, door opener. It's yeah, nice. It's very useful. Yeah. To this day, it remains useful. <laughs> That's a great answer. <laughs> so put that in the New York Times. Well, what's funny is technology is technology until we get used to it. And then we stop calling it technology. Then it's life. It's just yeah. a tool. It's yeah. just every day around us. That's funny. That's a good way of putting it. That's, well, that's why you're writing for the Times. <laughs> Um, not that we didn't know already. Why? Uh, so on to the lightning round. Favorite book as a kid? Oh, um, I was big into the Nancy Drew books. Oh, my God. I had in my notes to say, like, I'm going to show you this. I actually wrote it down. I'm going to show on page two. 
I was, are, were you always a techie? Were you always an investigator? Nancy Drew Hardy voice. That's funny. Is it not there? Yeah, Nancy Please Drew. Please verify. Trust and in, but verify. And in science fiction fantasy, I mean, I loved all the yeah. Dragons of Pern and Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And I, I loved, I was a big reader. Yeah. Book, well, you're a big reader, but you're also on a big book tour now, so you might not have as much time, but book or books you're reading now. Oh, what am I reading right now? So I have The Wager by David Grant on my bedside table. Awesome. Um, and on the road, I actually just bought Copperhead, um, which is a fiction book that's been on the bestseller list. Okay. I haven't gotten to that one. I will check it out. Have you started it yet, Copperhead? No, I have been okay. lugging it around. I got the, I got the head. It's a heavy book. All right, I'll uh, I'll check it out. The Wager I have read, and it was awesome. That's a great. Yeah, I fun. love David Grant. He's just such a fabulous storyteller. Next question: Do you currently get a paper, a physical paper, newspaper delivered? I do actually. I am a New York Times subscriber. I was a subscriber before I started working for them. I just get Saturday, Sunday. Mm -hmm. I also get a lot of magazines. I get New Yorker and New York Magazine and Wired. Um, Wired is that still around? Wow, it, I used to get. I lived is. in San Francisco for a while, and I got it there. I didn't know that was still around. They have a great new uh, editor, um, uh, executive editor. She's actually a friend of mine. Another NYU student, Meryl Gordon, oh, Katie nice. Drummond. She came from Vice. I'm very excited about what she's going to do with that. I might resubscribe because I love that. Magazine magazine and then i think when i moved back east i i stopped getting it but we we also get the times post journal all delivered seven days yeah so i don't i don't get it in print but i do have a subscription wall street journal i read that one a lot okay uh let's see an innovation that is currently only in concept phase that you think could be in common use in the next 10 15 years i guess we already covered it but these gl this glasses i mean something yeah. where you can just identify people around you or get information about them i mean this is mark zuckerberg's big push at mm -hmm. facebook why he renamed the company meta is these kind of glasses that we would all wear that would just be telling us about the world around us that would just be an insane party trick i mean i can't I don't think I'd walk around all day with it, but I would definitely buy a pair and I would definitely opt for the privacy setting. Yeah. I mean, it could be powerful, but you also think about all the problems we've had with online and, mm -hmm. you know, people, things getting written about you online that you don't like and not being able to mm -hmm. control your well, online exactly. reputation. Yeah. And all of that would be attached to your face in the real world. And I think that is one of the real possible downsides of a technology like this. I think people would just have to get used to the fact that there is so much nonsense out there. And as you know, no, just getting back to your book for a second, you talk about there are no fresh starts anymore. Like these poor kids growing up, I was an idiot in the 70s and 80s. And man, if that were indelible, that would what be What if a that nightmare. was all on Facebook and everybody could find it? What a nightmare. What a nightmare for me. And uh, these poor kids growing up now with, I, I think as a result of the fact that there is no fresh start anymore, we just need to become a more forgiving society. You know, like you're going to put these glasses on, you're going to see that stuff. You're going to say, well, half of that's probably nonsense. And even if it's not, People make mistakes and, you know, because you're going to look around the room and everyone's going to have a, a load of terrible stuff about them. Yeah. Like how many people would have, have a squeaky clean report on those glasses? I just, when I look at the world today, I just do not see us getting more forgiving. I feel like we're more judgmental than, than ever. I remember Eric mm -hmm. Schmidt, the chairman of Google, he was asked about children's privacy in this age of Google where everything's kept. And he said, yeah, maybe in the future, um, basically kids will change their name at 18, uh, which was derided at the time. And now it wouldn't even work because you can search their face. Mm. Right, right. Your face is like this this token that you carry around that you cannot shake. I mean, this facial recognition technology, it can get you through 
sunglasses. It can get you through a mask. It doesn't matter. Like it just needs to see like a tiny bit of your face to really identify you. That's the crazy, like through COVID, you're walking around a mat. It doesn't matter. This stuff still recognizes you. Yeah, it's crazy. I don't know how the hell that works. I know. It's crazy how powerful it's gotten. Yeah. Gosh. We're actually joking before uh, Cashmere and I started recording that, you know, it just needs a little bit of your face. So if you're out at the concert with your side piece <laughs> and someone snaps a photo in which you're only in the background, one search from your significant other is going to find you out there doing something you said you were not doing. So we, we realize that this technology will be the end of side pieces. Yes. There will be no more. A more accountable, uh, accountable <laughs> world. I, I assume that's a positive use of the technology. That, that Maybe that's unclear. I, let, let's flip that, that last question, though, like in terms of... Uh, you know, we were talking about something that could be here in 10 or 15. What about something from the 80s or 90s that has been sort of wiped out that you miss that could be could be brought back? Um, just being um, out of touch. Like, oh, yeah. Like just having quiet times where no one could reach you. Yeah. For me, it's the Acela train. I just I went down to Delaware on the Acela the other day. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is like a spa. I just sat there. The they brought me a glass of wine and I had three hours of utter me in the chair and the wine. That was it. <laughs> but combine that with like a landline where it's the only place that you could get your messages and you didn't even have to look at your phone. Right. Don't retrieve anything. That's it. Oh, sounds awesome. Uh, let's see. Best sci-fi movie ever made. I mean, Minority Report has mm. held up. And I think the movie is actually better than the Philip K. Dick story that it's based on. I didn't even know that was a Philip K. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's not as good as the movie, actually. One of the rare examples of that. But yeah, yeah, I mean, Tom Cruise running down that that hallway at the mall and all the ads, you know, calling him out by name. It just increasingly feels like the world that we're going to live in. I, that movie is excellent. I'm going to go back. I haven't watched that. And I'm, I'm really watching movies that my kids could kind of connect with. And my kids are 10, 12, and 14. So I, I'm worried our 10-year-old might not quite get it because it's mm-hmm. pretty techy. And, but maybe, maybe he's ready. I might, might try that one with him. Uh, let's see. Best place, in addition to your New York Times reporting, to find out about the tech that's around the corner. Ooh, I really like the um, MIT Tech Review. They have some great, uh, some great articles. Is that and, online only, or is that paper? Uh, I only read it online. I don't know if they have a print product or not. Um, but yeah, it's a great site and very thoughtful about technology like, like a subscription, and or you just go to the site and grab stuff. You can just go to the site and read it. Okay. Yeah. And so it talks about stuff that's experimental and concept phase and. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they they are coming with more of like a science lens definitely policy stories too and then mm-hmm. i think i think wired <laughs> wired right <laughs> i'm already so don't go beyond the sale you've already got me i'm back in <laughs> all right last question for Kashmir hill one piece of advice for the listeners well um i mean i would i i, I think we've already said it in an interview but i think that you should go to pimeyes.com and search your face and see what's out there and the site does allow you at this point if there's something you don't like in the search results you can remove them so i have been telling people to go and try it for yourself and kind of see how how good it is and i think you'll be better prepared for the world to come if you see this and then you know think about it every time you're posting something publicly or yeah. taking a photo that could end up on the internet well you you'll be better prepared and you too will be reaching for a gin and tonic <laughs> it is scary stuff 
It's, I'm, I'm thrilled you're out there covering this stuff and writing these books. It's fascinating stuff, and people should know about it. Well, thank you for having me on to talk about it. I really appreciate it, and this was a fabulous drink. Oh, good. What a pleasure. Thanks, Cashmere. Thank you. If you have been enjoying the audio of Dedicated, now we have more for you. We are now videoing our episodes of Dedicated. So go to YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, Rumble, and the SiriusXM app, and you can see a video of our episodes of Dedicated with our awesome guests. Thank you. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.